Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. to slam people's heads up against walls. Jamie Lee Curtis is a cop with a problem. Put the gun down now! 24 hours on the force and she's already blown some poor slob's face off. No gun found at the scene, officer. Turn her nothing on the victim. The men on the force won't believe her. It was there. I saw it. The man at her side can't help her. I think somebody out there likes you. And the man in her arms is the killer. We have to stop him. Death. It's the greatest kick of all. Blue Steel, a point-blank thriller. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Blue Steel from 1990. The studio was MGM, though it was originally going to be on Vestron Pictures, but then they sold the film to MGM due to financial issues. The release date was March 16, 1990, with a running time of 102 minutes. The rating is R. I don't have the budget numbers, but the box office took in a minimal $8.2 million, making it the 106th ranked movie of 1990. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 73% fresh from 22 reviews and their critics' consensus is Blue Steel's increasingly over-the-top story beggars disbelief, but this cop drama is elevated by an appealing cast and Catherine Bigelow's stylish direction. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. Squint a little to see the structure lurking beneath the details, and Blue Steel is a sophisticated update of Halloween, the movie that first made Jamie Lee Curtis a star. She plays the competent, strong woman who finally has to defend herself because nobody else can. Her life is endangered by a man who seems unstoppable, unkillable. No matter what happens to him, he picks himself up, pulls himself together, and continues her inexorable pursuit. This formula provides the bedrock for Blue Steel. What makes it more interesting than yet another sequel to Halloween is the way the filmmakers have fleshed out the formula with intriguing characters and a few angry ideas. Curtis plays a New York cop who graduates from the police academy in the pre-title sequence, and the movie's villain is Ron Silver, a commodities broker who goes off the deep end. The plot is a little of Fatal Attraction, a little of Jagged Edge, and a little of Wall Street. It works because it's so audacious in combining elements that don't seem to belong together. The movie is not simply a series of violent encounters, not at first anyway. There's a half-realized subplot involving Curtis's parents, Louise Fletcher and Philip Bosco, and some vague psychological hints about why Bosco hates the idea of his daughter becoming a cop. The movie's weakest scene is the one where Curtis and her father leave his home for the sole purpose of not being there when Silver arrives so that she can be chilled when she finds him there on her return. The manipulation here is so awkward, the scene should have been rewritten on the spot. Other moments are much more convincing. What happens is that no one, especially not the men of the police department, believes Curtis's version of the events. Nor do they believe that a respectable commodities broker could possibly be a mass murderer. The Silver character is intelligent enough to set up situations so that Curtis is seen in the worst possible way until she finally seems to be the killer herself. But what does Silver want? 
Silver does a good job of gradually revealing the demented depths of his character. Blue Steel was directed by Catherine Bigelow, whose previous credit was the well-regarded Near Dark. Does that make it a fundamentally different picture than if it had been directed by a man? Perhaps, in a way. The female victim is never hapless here, although she is set up in all the usual ways ordained by male-oriented thrillers. She can fight back with her intelligence, her police training, and her physical strength. And there is an anger in the way the movie presents the male authorities in the film who are blinded by the facts that their preconceptions about women in general and female cops in particular. The bottom line, however, is that Blue Steel is an efficient thrower, a movie that pays off with one shock and surprise after another, including a couple of really serpentine twists and a couple of superior examples of the killer jumping unexpectedly from the dark scene. I always feel dumb after I jump during one of those scenes, but I always jump. And that's the end of Ebert's review. So I did not see Blue Steel when it first came out because I was only like 11 or 12 at the time, and this would have been a bit too mature for my movie viewing. Something like Men at Work was much more my speed in 1990. However, when I finally did see the film years later, I really enjoyed it. And as Ebert mentioned, it was like the reverse version of Fatal Attraction in many ways, with Jimmy Lee Curtis and Ron Silver doing excellent jobs with their performances. All right, let's get into the main cast. Of course, you have Jamie Lee Curtis playing Megan Turner. And as Ebert mentioned in his review, Curtis's big break was in the original Halloween from 1978, directed by John Carpenter. If you weren't aware, Curtis had the acting lineage in her DNA because her parents were Hollywood royalty, Janet Lee and Tony Curtis. And interestingly enough, Curtis's early roles almost typecast her as a scream queen in horror films like Halloween 1 and 2, The Fog, Prom Night, and Terror Train. But really, it was 1983's Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy that really put her in the Hollywood mainstream, and she never looked back. The film prior to Blue Steel, often considered one of her best, is 1988's A Fish Called Wanda. Ron Silver plays Eugene Hunt, and Silver started his career mostly on television in the mid-1970s, most notably as Gary Levy on Rhoda. Up until Blue Steel, he mostly appeared as a character actor on filming and continued to act and also host a radio program up until his death in 2009 from esophageal cancer. Clancy Brown plays Nick Mann. So Brown's career started in the early 1980s with his most early memorable role as the villain of Kurgan from the original Highlander from 1986. He continues to act consistently today on TV and film and is probably best known for playing Captain Healy in The Shawshank Redemption. The director was Catherine Bigelow, and she also co-wrote the film with Eric Red. And on a personal note, Bigelow grew up in the San Francisco area in San Carlos, California, which is the city next to my hometown city of Belmont. Bigelow's major film directorial debut was in 1981's The Loveless with William Defoe. It would be six years before her next film, Near Dark. Three years later, she directed Boo Steel, and she would go on to direct the original Point Break in 1991, and then she won an Academy Award for The Hurt Locker in 2008. All right, let's get right into the movie. So it starts with a bang as we see uh, New York police officer Megan Turner, Jamie Lee Curtis, on the scene of a domestic disturbance in an apartment building. No! Shut up! You hear me? I'll kill you right now! Just let her go. I don't want anybody to get hurt. I don't want to hurt you. Don't come any closer! Okay. Just 
let her go. Die! No! Shit! Okay, gentlemen, next victim. Killed the husband, but the wife killed you, Turner. In the field, you got have eyes in the back of your head. As you can tell from the last clip, Megan is not yet a police officer, but she's still in training. After the opening credits, which is a close-up of a police-issued revolver being loaded, it cuts to a graduation for new recruits, with Megan being one of the graduates. After graduation, Megan goes home and listens to her answering machine messages on tape. Remember those? Her mom, Shirley, played by Louise Fletcher, wants her to come over for dinner. Dinner is less than pleasant as her parents didn't bother to even go to her graduation. Megan has a very tense relationship with her father named Frank, played by Philip Bosco, who is not pleased that his daughter is a cop. There's more to this family dynamic as we find out later. So then we cut to Megan driving on duty with her new partner. They stop at a convenience store so that he can use the bathroom. While ordering coffee from the clerk, Megan notices that an armed robbery is in progress at a grocery store across the street. Tom Sizemore is the holdup guy in this in his film debut. Without waiting for her partner to get out of the bathroom, Megan races to the back door of the grocery store. So while the robber is arguing with the checkout clerk to give him the key for the register, Megan carefully goes down a few aisles to sneak up on the robber. I'm ordering Chinese food, funk face. Give me the money. That's right. Change in there. Change in there. All right. No one even fucking breathe. All right. All right. We're in a grave asshole. We're in the fucked up. Give me the bag. Give me the bag. I'm gonna play games, huh? I'm gonna play some fucking games. Give me the bag. Give me the fucking change. Police! Put the gun down! Get out of my face, baby. Put down the gun! Oh, look, bitch, I didn't come here to fuck with you! I said put the gun down now! Oh, fuck you! So as you could hear from the last clip, Sizemore acted like he was going to shoot Megan, and she, without hesitation, shot him four times in the chest, knocking him through the store window. Immediately after the shooting, a customer who was laying on the ground slowly grabs the gun that flew out of the robber's hand when he was shot. And that customer is Eugene Hunt, played by Ron Silver. This will come into play, of course, later. Eugene goes back to his very nice apartment and inspects the gun that he took from the crime scene. Megan's boss, the assistant police chief, played by Kevin Dunn, now has to deal with the aftermath of a shooting from a rookie officer and no weapon from the robber that was found on the scene. And she's also being interrogated by a detective named Nick Mann, played by Clancy Brown. Let's go over it again. The only bullets fired were yours. You say the suspect had a gun, but no weapon was found at the scene. The cashier also states that the suspect had a weapon, but can't be sure what it was. When asked if it could have been a knife... The witness answered the affirmative. Chief White, I'd like to add, please, that the cashier was very upset. Yeah, no question. But the fact remains that you emptied an entire load. You blew the fucking head off an individual who only allegedly had a gun. And I suggest to you that there may have been some overreaction on your part. 
An unmodified assignment, Officer Turner. Push pencils for a while. Well, you got to hear this. Look, okay. Nick, no, it'll just take a second. You'll piss yourself. This guy's in from Hackensack, right? It's Saturday night. He's got a hook in the back of a cab. A head is buried in his lap. Life is good. Right. The taxi hits a pothole. A head pops up. What do you think? She's still got a dick in her mouth. Okay, so the guy, he's bleeding all over the place, but he don't want to go nowhere. He don't want to go to a hospital because he's somebody, right? The, the, the cabbie, he's pissed off because there's blood all over his back seat. The hooker pulls out a needle and thread. Stanley. She sews his dick on backwards. <laughs> I wonder what he's going to say to his wife. Officer Turner, 24 hours on the force and she's already blown some poor slob's face off. And 24 hours later, she's off the force. It was justifiable circumstances. What did he draw on you? It looked like a 44. Why didn't you just tackle him? Because he was 40 feet away. So then how could you tell if it was a 44? Because I could. You mind? No gun found at the scene, Officer Turner. Nothing on the victim. I know. I saw it. It was there. I saw it. I saw the metal glint. And then you drew. No, then I fired. He didn't shoot first? I asked him to drop the gun. He wouldn't. He swung it in my direction. How fast? What? Okay, look. Put that shit down. I'm him. All right? I'm just showing you something, okay? It's a comb. You know something, Turner? You'd be lucky to last 36 hours on the job. Says who? Detective Nicholas Mann, homicide. I'll be seeing you. Says who? After the meeting, Megan sees that her mom has come to visit her. This is where we discover that Megan's mom has been physically and mentally abused by her dad in the past, and likely still. Though it hasn't been said yet, this is likely the reason Megan decided to become a police officer. Next, we cut to the stereotypical 80s scene of Wall Street, where we see hundreds of people, mostly men, yelling out inintelligible nonsense, at least to me, where they're buying and selling shares of stock. Eugene is one of those lunatics yelling, so I guess he's some sort of stock trader. He's also carrying the gun that he stole from the crime scene with him everywhere he goes. He's slowly kind of turning into Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. He's staring at bathroom mirrors, and then he's also drawing the gun at the same time. So while Jamie Lee Curtis is very terrific in her role, Silver really steals the show here. His performance is, is awesome. Next, Megan is invited by her best friend, Tracy, played by Elizabeth Pena, to a barbecue. And as Megan finds out, Tracy has been waiting to set up Megan with a guy named Howard, played by Matt Craven. This leads to some awkward small talk for both of them. So you're Tracy's friend, huh? Yeah, I've known her since I was a kid. Tracy has nice friends. Thank you. How do you know her? I'm the CPA. No way. Yeah. You don't look like a CPA. Yeah. Well, she has nice CPAs. Thank you. So what do you do? I'm a cop. <laughs> Come on. Really? Get off of there, Jenny! Are you okay? Yeah, sure. Why? You look bad. Look like you just ate something bad. A cop, huh? I want to right here. You wear a gun? Yeah. You're not on duty, though. No. 
can I ask you a question? Just, you know, civilian to civilian? Sure. You're a good-looking woman. I mean, beautiful, in fact. Why, why would you want to become a cop? I like to slam people's heads up against walls. Uh-huh. Well, uh, it's nice talking to you. I really, I gotta go. I got a lot of work to do. Bye. So I'm not sure if female officers get the same reaction today, but in any case, I love Megan's answer as it eliminates the idiots who can't handle what she does for a living. That night, walking in a torrential downpour, you ever notice that it never like lightly rains in movies? <laughs> Eugene is walking the streets for no particular reason. He trips, and the gun he's been carrying falls out of his jacket. A man walks up to see if he's okay. Eugene slowly gets up and, with a maniacal look on his face, decides he's going to shoot the Good Samaritan. There's no logic, just the guy that's slowly losing his mind after witnessing Megan shoot their store robber. Eugene shoots and kills the guy point-blank and walks away like nothing happened. Megan, in the meantime, is on work suspension until further notice. While leaving the police station, Megan just happens to run into Eugene while waiting to grab a taxi. He offers to share his cab with her instead of having her walk in the rain. Again, it's raining like it's in the Amazon jungle. Megan has no idea that Eugene was one of the customers at the robbery. Traffic is crazy heavy since it's New York City, and Eugene suggests they wait out the traffic by getting something to eat. They go to a fancy restaurant, Megan feels self-conscious since she's very underdressed. Both Eugene and Megan enjoy each other, and there's an obvious connection, so they agree to go out again. The next morning, Megan is woken up early by internal affairs, arriving at her place for questioning about the random shooting of the man by Eugene. The reason she's brought in is that the bullet casing found her full name etched into it. Yes. Are you Megan Turner? Yes. We're from Internal Affairs. We're going to have to ask you to come with us. Can you tell me why? Just come with us, please. Just give me a minute. This poor guy bought it on the Upper West Side tonight. If it wasn't so bold, it would be stupid. Wish all homicides were this easy. Give me an answer to this. I have no idea. Get an idea. Get two ideas. Think, Megan. Hard. Aren't there any other Megan Turners in New York? Yeah, one. Megan Augusta Turner, 86 years old, lives in a nursing home in the Bronx. We're checking, but I'd say it's an exercise. Doesn't sound like the kind of girl that gets her name put on a bullet. I don't think of myself as the kind of girl who gets her name on a bullet either. Learn something new about yourself every day. Where were you around midnight? Sleeping. The officers won't corrupt me. Okay. Come on, Megan. You're a pretty girl. Uh, maybe you throw over somebody had a violent streak, no. an old boyfriend no. or something. What, no old boyfriends? Had a personal problem? All right, how about an acquaintance? Look, I don't know anybody. I, my mom, my dad, my friend Tracy, her husband John, I mean. Current boyfriend? No. You know, there's a chance it's not me. True. Could be Augusta, 86. I mean, maybe this burpee's got to think for oxygen tanks, but I doubt it. I think somebody out there likes you. The detective, Nick Mann, who was just interrogating Megan, goes to her commanding officer and requests that she be taken off suspension so that she can potentially draw out the killer. 
It's obvious that Eugene is obsessed with Megan, as their meeting wasn't by coincidence after the grocery store shooting. Megan, at this point, has no idea that Eugene is the killer. Megan is also given a promotion of detective by name only for this particular case. Her partner will be Nick, who makes it clear that she is to do exactly what he says at all times. Megan, who has no idea about Gene again, is wined and dined by him going to fancy restaurants and helicopter rides around New York City. And what she doesn't know is that Nick is also following her, and he's waiting for her at her apartment after her date with Eugene. He reiterates to Megan that he must know everything that she does in her personal life. That night, Megan is called to the scene of yet another random shooting, and again, another bullet casing has her name on it. Eugene has killed again. The news has dubbed him the 44 Magnum Killer, and he's becoming even more maniacal, hearing voices and working out like a mental patient. He's getting a godlike complex, which he uses to rationalize his random killings. So this is where some might find Silver's performance as overacting, but I think it's fabulous, as he's truly a psychopath now. He picks up a prostitute and then kills her. You don't actually see that part, but what you see is Eugene stripping off all of his clothes. He's breathing heavy like he's having sex, but really he's taking a blood-soaked sweater, presumably the prostitutes, and rubbing it all over his face and chest. In the meantime, Megan and Nick continue to attempt to create a profile of the killer, much to the frustration of both of them. At this point, Megan and Eugene have gone out on multiple dates but not slept together. This is about to change that night when she goes back to his apartment. This is a fascinating scene as Eugene doesn't want Megan to take off her gun harness, which is packed with her gun, while they make out. He then requests that she take out her gun and then hold it with both hands. It's almost like he can only get aroused by the sight of guns now. Megan feels understandably apprehensive and awkward following Eugene's instructions, but she does it anyway. He kneels down and holds the gun to his head that she's holding on him, and here is where he admits that he was at the grocery store when she did her shooting. He then tries to explain his maniacal plan of killing random people. In his demented psyche, Megan has the traits of a cold-blooded killer when she shot the robber. So Megan places Eugene under arrest, and he doesn't seem to care at all. He calmly explains that now the fun has begun between the two of them. This is what he's wanted all along, a cat-and-mouse game. So Eugene is thrown in jail, but he's got an impeccable record, and he's a commodities trader, and he's rich, so he's not going to be in jail long. Basically, Megan has flimsy probable cause with someone that she had a relationship with. Eugene is promptly released. Alright, so now we have the crime movie trope of detectives in a bind because they can't go near a suspect, even if they're sure it's their guy, because the department can be sued for harassment. Eugene holds all the cards, which he proves that night. See, if you got married and had kids, you know how to do this stuff. Yeah, but then I wouldn't be so dependent on you. There, I boiled water. How's John? Right now he's probably tearing his hair out. He's taking care of the kids. It's nice. <laughs> nice. You try it. No, I mean, it's nice. You and the babies. John, your life. Yeah. You too? I'm glad you're my friend, Trish. Oh, I'm glad you're my friend too. But anyway, I'm going to Sunday. I'm going to cook lasagna, which is my specialty. Yeah. John will be there. The kids will be there. You better show up because I invited that guy I told you about. Tracy, Tracy, just do me one favor, okay? For the rest of my life, just one. Don't set me up. He's a nice guy. Give me a break, Tracy. Tracy. So is the other guy. Just remember. 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 Just remember.
So Eugene killed Megan's best friend Tracy and then knocked out Megan. Nick and Megan go to Eugene's apartment where they find him sitting calmly at his place, which is trash. Eugene's lawyer quickly appears at the scene and questions Megan and gets her to admit that she didn't actually see Eugene's face since he grabbed her from behind and before shooting Tracy. Megan is making every mistake possible and Eugene is always one step ahead. Megan goes to her parents' house where she finally has it out with her father's abuse of her mom. Mom. Nothing. What happened to your aunt? Nothing. Mom. Don't you say anything, Shirley. Did you do this to her? She had an accident. She fell down the stairs. Mom, did he do this to you? Just tell me. Just tell me. You don't talk, Shirley. Shut up, Dad! Just shut up! I've had just about enough of you. You hit her again, you son of a bitch. You don't have nothing to say about it! You're under arrest. Are you kidding me? <laughs> My daughter put me under arrest? <laughs> All right, come on, that's enough. Come on, that's enough! You let me out of this car this goddamn minute. You hear me? And take these things off of my wrist. Now you listen to me, I'm your father. I'm ashamed of that. Just give me one good reason why I shouldn't take you in. I don't believe this. I don't fucking Dad! Why? I don't know. I get mad. I... 
it happens again. Back. Frank? Hi, Shirley. Hi. Megan, honey, your friend is here. Frank, this is Eugene, Eugene Hunt. And this is my husband, Frank Turner. Hi. <laughs> so, yes, Eugene is sitting in Megan's parents' house. And this is where the suspense part of the plot comes in. As both Eugene and Megan know what's going on as her parents are blissfully unaware as they watch television with him. So, what will happen now? The rest of the film, which is about 30 minutes, is the cat and mouse game of Megan and Nick versus Eugene. It's a fabulous ride and if you're into police dramas, this should be right up your alley. The tension and the payoff is great along with the cinematography of the final scenes. And since it didn't do well at the box office initially, this might be one you missed, so definitely check it out. All right, some fun facts. According to co-screenwriter Eric Redd, the movie is just a female version of The Hitcher from 1986. And Eric Redd is the one that suggested Jamie Lee Curtis for the lead role. To play Eugene, these actors were considered Michael Keaton, Alec Baldwin, Andy Garcia, Arnold Schwarzenegger... Bruce Willis, Stephen Lang, Ray Liotta, Robert Patrick, Tim Robbins, Jeff Bridges, Tommy Lee Jones, Richard Gere, and Ron Perlman. Jeff Kober was considered to play Eugene Hunt, but turned it down due to the villain role in The First Power with Blue Diamond Phillips as the hero cop. Wilhelm von Holmberg was considered to play Eugene Hunt, but he was unavailable after Ghostbusters 2, in which he played Vigo, the Carpathian, was being filmed. Alright, I will be back next week for yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the Bad Beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie Memories. <laughs> I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff. And yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to tpublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for Damn Good Movie Memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. 
I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. The way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbean. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science! Are you ready for the hottest new podcast out there? Check out the Vieira Vault featuring none other than Dr. Fuck Ralph Vieira. You will hear personal stories and personal songs from the vault. There ain't nothing else like it. The one, the only, the original Vieira Vault on Podbean, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. Spreaker. God damn it. This is Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock Podcast. If you're like me and my co-host, Sonny Hollywood Pooney, you grew up loving hard rock and metal music. Check out our podcast where we talk to bands and artists that help create the soundtrack to our lives, along with playing some killer new and old deep tracks of kick-ass, guitar-driven rock and roll. Find us wherever you find your podcast to listen to, That's the Growing Up Rock Podcast, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. And feel free to hit us up at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Growing Up Rock. So sit back and crank it up.